Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 35 of Lean Whiskey. I'm Mark Graben. I'm kind of tired. It's a Sunday night. We're going to try to have a kind of a, a energetic, fun episode, though. Uh, we're joined, um, as usual, by Jamie Flinchball. And uh, I'm, I'm a bit tired myself. And usually it's when you're tired, then drinking whiskey isn't the cure. But, uh, no. uh, you know, it's what we do here. I'm, I'm neither admitting nor denying that that has anything to do with why I'm tired, right? So we can talk about cause and effect versus countermeasures. <laughs> we, we, we got on before we start recording. Like, how are you doing? Great. Like, well, okay, actually tired. Because Jamie admitted <laughs> first. Like, I don't know. Why am I trying to gloss over? Like, it's just that reflex. How are you doing? Oh, great. Great day. I mean, not a bad day. Not a bad day. I've had a great day. I'm just, I'm just tired. So. It's been a great weekend, actually. So, uh, um, but sometimes you know, good things make you tired. And and uh, when people ask me how it's going, I I I, I tell the truth. So, sure. Um, it's a beautiful day here. I'm in uh, Cincinnati, uh, Ohio. It's been like you know, sunny and 65 degrees. So I'm going to enjoy that as much as we can get it. Um, as winter approaches, this is kind of new or new again. <laughs> new again <laughs> being someplace where um it it it, does, it gets cold more in the in the in the winter time so maybe whiskey is a counter no that's not really true but it makes you feel warm whiskey is a counter it, it, it is it, it 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 feels good when it's snowing outside and you'll you'll get some of that I, so i am in washington dc in the uh the gaylord hotel which is a really neat hotel um overlooking the river overlooking the bridge in the national Harbor where the big Ferris wheel is. And, uh, since even though I don't travel much anymore, I have still have pretty nice status and I have a, a nice balcony view where I can see the river. Nice. Um, although the, the sun's the sun just, just dipped down. So, uh, it's, it's just dark out there now. Yeah. That's a huge property. I've had a chance to go uh, to that one. And then, you know, Nashville and Dallas, you know, there's a little, I mean, the, the one there on the harbor is less of the giant city within a city, but it's huge. Right. It's still big. It's big. And then, you know, there's just lots of shopping and restaurants uh, in the in the area. And I, I think there's a casino up on the hill or something like that. So, um, no, I, I've been I've been in a conference room since 730 this morning. So uh, I can't say I've, I've fully experienced it, though. So we're, we're going to talk quickly about conferences. I mean, I've had a pretty lazy day. You know, being a new again Direct TV customer, I get the free NFL Sunday ticket package, and I'll tell you that Red Zone channel um, it eliminates the waste. I'm going to try to make a labored connection to Lean here. Like it is all value added time. There are no, you know no commercials it's going from game to game, but I'll tell you it's I, I'm not good at watching this. It's like it's almost too much. Like three games, four games going on, and oh, it's like it's a little, it's a little sensory overload. Yeah. Uh... There's a, well, I'm a soccer guy, obviously, and they have goal rush some sometimes where it's you know watching lots of games and they bounce around and all of that. But I I kind of prefer to sit sit back and uh, and just watch a watch a single game, even though my team was playing while 
while I was I was listening to uh, Admiral Stavridis, who is uh, uh, Stavridis, who is the former uh, Supreme Allied Commander of NATO forces, um, wow. and one of the most brilliant uh, speakers I've and just guys I've ever seen. Uh, you know, really, you, you you listen to him, and you wanna you wanna go read like forty seven books and study everything. Uh, but I am I'm doing this at the National Association of Corporate Directors annual conference, which I try to go to every 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 couple of years. But since the pandemic, it's been been a little while. So, so did, did the board members and the companies want this crystal ball of help me? alleviate this feeling of uncertainty and create certainty where we can't really have it? Um, not necessarily. I say not the more experienced ones. I think, I think uh, it's, it's navigating this uncertainty um, and remaining calm and, and diligent through the uncertainty. So, you know, actually someone asked, uh, you know, the Admiral, how do you remain calm through these stressful times? And he, uh, you know, he, he, two things he said was exercise, um, you know, take care of your body so that it can, it can help you process. And then he also said, read, right. And so so he, he shared a biography of FDR who had to deal with a whole lot more than we're dealing with today, right. Between the great depression and world war. And he, I don't say he was calm through the whole thing, but boy, he, he was right. Yeah. So he shared that as an example of that. And so, yeah, I think we're all looking for a little more, a little more wisdom, a little more insight or foresight. But I, I think the ones who are more experienced are just looking on how do we best navigate it? And then mm-hmm. importantly, sure. how do we help our management teams navigate it? Because often they're either younger or less experienced, or they have more at stake. And so the pressure to perform in that uncertainty is, is a, not always our best friend. Yeah. So I'd say that's a pretty big theme of this uh, this conference so far. Yeah. Well, I'm getting into a three-week stretch of travel, um, different reasons, different places. I'll be two weeks from now, and, and, and not long after this episode gets released, I'll be in Dallas for the AME Annual Conference um, Association for Manufacturing Excellence. So um, I, I already know... Some of the people that I'm going to run into there and, and some of it I'm sure will be uh, by you know, surprise and bump into people. If you're a listener uh, and, and you see me there, you know, come come say hi, whether I know you already or, or not. Um, you're talking about board members and executives. I'm excited um, to hear you know, one of the keynote speakers is Larry Culp, the chairman and, and CEO of GE. For those yep. who don't know his background in corporate history, he was CEO and I'm assuming also chairman at Danaher. Yep. Uh, considered, you know, uh, great American lean success story. And so it'd be really interesting to hear him, you know, share, you know, he's been in the role at GE four years now. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, is it four years? Uh, I was thinking it was three, yeah. but no, I just yeah, had wow. that anniversary and okay. shared on LinkedIn, um, you know, article kind of reflections and, and, t- you know, and trying to answer this question. I'm, I'm, I'm here's some lean talk. Unexpected lean yeah. talk. Uh, he is. I'm, I'm curious how much of this he'll share, you know, at the conference. But in his public um, LinkedIn post, he was talking about this question of um, trend, culture change. And somebody asked him, "How long is it going to take for lean to really just become the way we think and do things here?" 
And he's hoping that's next year. But I mean, I'm sure in any huge corporation, there are pockets of uh, pockets of it. And it's it's not yes, no, or evenly spread across right. a corporation like this, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the best lean thinker in the world has good days and bad days. So I'm, it's, I'm not sure it's a, I think that might be a question that I challenge the premise <laughs> rather than try to answer. But he's, um, and I'll be curious about his speech, how much he talks about the structure, right? Because he's, you know, he's made a major structural change fundamentally to get the, the, the leaders in the organization closer to the customer and more distant from a corporate center of gravity, right? So change the center of gravity of the people and of the decisions to be closer to the customer and less to a corporate entity. And so that's a pretty major, you know, we don't talk a lot about the structural impact of on lean, but it's, it's an, it's a neat, it'll, well, it'll be, it will be a neat story if it works the way he intends it, but yeah. I'll, 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 I'll be curious to learn how much he talks about that. Yeah. And, and there's stuff that's been shared publicly. I blogged about this recently of operational improvements uh, at, at one of their sites in Italy and, um, you know, culture change around problem solving and, and leadership. But then there's the questions of, and, and these are more, board level conversations, maybe, uh, you know, spinning off other, uh, you know, GE healthcare and GE power systems and into separate corporations. And the GE that remains will be GE aviation renamed GE aerospace. And that's, that's the part of GE my, my wife is now working in. So, um, it's, uh, you know, there, it, you know, so it'd be interesting to, uh, to hear what's being shared publicly and, um, what, what he, you know, what his reflections are, um, just about lean from the C-suite. That's not a perspective we always get to hear. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's also very different. Uh, I would, I would love to hear him talk about it this way. The difference in coming up in an organization that's been on a lean journey for 30 years versus coming into an organization that was not lean, right? Some people think GE was lean, but coming into an organization that was not lean and kind of hitting the reset button. And, and that had to be, you know, I just kind of wondering how much he, well, I, I know how to lean lean, so I'm just going to keep doing that and the organizational shift, or did he have to approach it in a very different way? So, yeah. Um, so I'll share I'll share notes and I'm, I'll I'm sure take take notes. I'm sure you are in a, yeah. a blog post. So I'll be in Dallas and then the next week I'll be in Iowa at the Iowa Lean Consortium event. Um, so I've been there before. You've been there, right? Can yeah, I, yeah. I, Iowa Lean Consortium is always one of my favorites. Uh, it's a really well run organization and some great people. I mean, I I uh, I, I think as far as coalitions go and groups like that, the sort of practitioner to, and not to put us down, right? you and I down, but the practitioner to say consultant author uh, ratio always seems really solid uh, in favor of the, the practitioner side, uh, very company centric. And uh, yeah, I've, I've spoken there before and, and uh, I'm not really doing a lot of uh, running around giving speeches anymore, but, but it was always a favorite place for me to, to visit. So. It's a good group, and uh, I'll, I'll have the opportunity to hang out with different people from Kinexus at both events because Kinexus mm. is a sponsor um, of Great. both conferences. So, looking forward to that and sharing whiskey 
with um, with with folks. Um, I don't think I'll have time to go do a. I might be able to do a Gemba visit in Des Moines uh, on Sunday when I get in. We'll see. But I try to you know try to sample something local. Templeton Rye is there. That's probably if okay. I favorite Iowa whiskey. At least you can find Templeton Rye pretty easily these days. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a, it's a, it's a neat opportunity. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, it, it would be, it would be kind of cool for us to, uh, this is definitely next level production that we're not really prepared for, but show up at the same conference, you know, a few bottles of whiskey and some microphones yeah. and we record a whole, a whole set of lean whiskey episodes with, uh, some of our, our friends at these conferences, but it doesn't sound like something we'd pull off. Um, we we can try some small experiments someday. Um, well, that and that that we can pull off, right? We're yeah. we're pretty pretty happy to experiment and admit it doesn't always work. So, yeah. Uh, so we'll try. But then, um, you know, speaking of easy or easier to get, um, you know, we we always talk about our friend David Meyer and Glens Creek distilling i haven't he's an hour and a half away i haven't gotten down there yet i've sent some well-intended messages uh, uh you know i'm coming to see you soon Dave, <laughs> i should have done that or i should have done that today well he's 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 there a lot obviously and uh it's been a while since i've i've gone to see him um and and i did stock up well enough that i'm, I'm i still have a little inventory um yeah. mostly because i've been savoring it i don't want to run out uh as i have before but uh, I, I, I'm really happy to see, like, I, I've seen some of their social media and that it really looks busy. And mm-hmm. obviously they're posting pictures when they're busy and yeah. versus not being busy. But I, I really hope that, uh, you know, I know the small distilleries that really depended on, you know, people traveling by that, that really had a hard time with the pandemic. Uh, I'm, I, you know, the, the crowds have come back and. Uh, uh, you know, I really hope they, they, they stay busy. So you might go visit and he might not have time for you because he's got a line full of customers, which, yeah, would be, yeah. which would be fantastic. Well, if I were to go down on a weekend, I can buy some bottles and then go down on some weekday when I take the day off, that might be opportunity to have a, a more leisurely visit. But so we, we, we've been talking bourbon here in rye, but the theme today, when it comes to whiskey is going to go across the pond and across a channel um, to Scotland. So there's lean whiskey with a Y at the end, I guess, today. When today's, we're saying, today's just the Y. I'm saying it with uh, the KY um, spelling at the end. And we've got a theme here. We're, we're either calling it um, a scotch that most people maybe haven't heard of, or we could call them obscure-ish scotches like right off the top of your head like what do you think of the scotches that that most people think of like i would think of you know glen livet as on most every airplane glen livet glen morangi balvenie um right there there's certain uh, uh delta was always the doer's white label but uh <laughs> i just called that delta scotch but huh. you know you, you go to a restaurant and i i always found that there were sort of three different levels of of scotch menus there was a really basic which was you know some glen morangi some balvenie some some johnny, some johnny walker. walker yeah 
And then, and then there was sort of like a second level, which would include Oban. Like Oban was always my, like, if I saw it, I knew they were like a second tier menu. Like they were just a little more past the, the the first recognition. And I would put Balvini in that middle category. Cause I think like in the, probably the the first category of what you always going to see would include like McAllen. Yep. You're not always going to see a Balvenie at your, your kind of typical. No, you won't. That's, that's true. But yeah, Glenn, you know, Johnny, uh, uh, certainly Glenn Morangi, uh, Glenn Fittich. Um, those were you know, menus that weren't even trying would have those. And then if they, if they got to open, I felt like they were at least trying. And then there's those that really try and, and and those you had you know it could be all over the map, but you know these these are not uh, scotches that you would probably find on most restaurant menus or even on your at your liquor store shelf. Yeah. Now they're not they're not so obscure that you can't find them either. Um, but like I say, you just walk into your neighborhood liquor store, you may not find them there. So. Yeah. Well, I'm we'll, we'll let you go. First, the the one I'm I'm going to sample two side by side. One I bought at the store right nearby, and one that I brought back from Scotland. And we're going to talk more about that. Um, we teased it last episode that I was going to Scotland end of August. That did happen, so that's another reason to have Scotch as a theme. Yes, so uh, another reason we didn't uh, haven't recorded for a little while. So I am I am working on finishing a, a bottle of now. now I like with most Scottish words, I, I know I'm mispronouncing them. Yeah. And I, I think it was last episode. Um, I, I was pronouncing Brugladic. Brugladi. Brugladi is a tough one. Is a tough one, but I was pronouncing, so I was very proud of that. But this one I know is, is not right, but I've, I've always called it Kilcoman. I heard from our guide, uh, Kilhoman. So it's more, it's, it, it's, it, it's, I can't quite do, the proper accent, but the C is almost silent. Kilhoman. And, and, and based on the way they wrote it on the label, which, you know, for those that are watching on YouTube and will see, see me holding up the bottle, it, you know, I don't know if they did it to help you pronounce it right, but it, it, it does make sense. So now I'll try to remember that in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. The H is highlighted and, and stylized. And so Kilhoman, and um, I've had two bottles from this distillery. Now they're uh, uh, they're sort of a re uh, a rebirth uh, uh, brand, so they haven't been around again that long. Um, previously, I had one of their younger. Uh, uh, I, I don't know actually the age statement because it doesn't have it, but uh, Mach, I think it's Makir Bay or Makir Bay, um, and it's a very light. It's a very light, lightly colored and fairly light tasting scotch. This is the uh, uh, the Loch Gorm, and and Loch is obviously sort of well, it's not really a lake. It's a it's a it sort of looks like a lake, acts like a lake, but is connected to the sea. If I remember yeah. my, well, yeah, it's funny. Lake is both a loch, a self contained freshwater body of water. We would call a lake, but then also seawater what we would call a bay i think yeah but i think it's still freshwater i think it's i think it's connected but it looks like it looks like a bay but it's still freshwater mm-hmm. and fed 
fed from fresh water, which which would make sense because you wouldn't you wouldn't include seawater in your in your in your whiskey. But it's called Loch Gorm. It's it's a limited edition, but I'm not sure how limited it's limited. It wasn't like it was out. Go to their website; they show four four expressions, and this is one of them. So it's not like they just released it one time and it's gone. But um, much darker, uh, lots of lots of caramel, uh, and 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 you know thick color and sort of uh, thick taste. Um, Forty six percent. Uh, sherry cast matured, which is where some of the color, uh, mm-hmm. comes from, but, you know, quite, quite good. I mean, I, it's, it, it is in that, it, it, I'd almost maybe call it the, uh, uh, the Glens Creek of, of, of scotches, um, you know, with, with, with a little more, you know, uh, a little more on the savory side, um, and, and, and less on some of the sweet side. I, you know, they talk about, peat in the um in the tasting notes which i don't get it's not a peat what we call a peat monster it's not mm. just you know yeah. overloaded peat but you know you got some 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 heavier fruits and and sort of toffee flavors and it's quite good i i, I enjoy it i'll be disappointed when the bottle's gone and um i'll i'll have to go find another one but this is now a brand i've yeah, it's my second bottle from this brand, and I—I I don't want to say I'm hooked, but um, I'll be going back to this brand. I—I I, I think they do a good job. And and that's a whiskey I haven't had. I don't think I even tried it during our trip when we were um, on Isla, the island of Isla. Uh, we 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 drove past. We could see the sign pointing that Kilhoman is up this way, um, off the main road. Um, we went to um, you know, Lagavulin and, and Lafroig and Brooklady and Bunahaben and Bowmore. Um, we can't hit them all. I mean, we got pretty close. Right. right. There's a lot trying of them. Trying to remember if it's eight or nine on the island, but uh, Kilhoman, they call it like you know a grain to glass distillery that they actually do some farming of some barley right there. Yeah, and they they have right on the bottle they call it Eslay's Farm Distillery, and um, you know there's been a, a a bit of a trend in the micro mm-hmm. side of, of doing more of that. I, I think I don't know if we talked about this particular, but we we talked about Dad's Hat Rye in Pennsylvania before. I've, I've tasted it on the on the show, but you know they're working on their own not only their uh, their a, a rebirthed rye variety. Mm-hmm. That they're the only one growing, and and it's they're working with one farmer. It's their their rye that's only going to go to them and their bottles. So I think there's you know a lot of times rye is just a category, and it's all sorts of stuff mixed together. As an example, as is corn that goes into into bourbon. But yeah, when you when you when you know how important the grain is, mm-hmm. it makes sense to control it all the way back to the farming. So yeah. Uh, don't don't want to say it makes it better. It doesn't make it better, but you know, talk about managing your supply chain and quality control and shaping your flavors. And yeah, I, I, I respect it. Well, there's been a trend on Isla of using more local barley. Like a lot of it's actually brought in from like, you know, the mainland of Scotland. Right. And, and, and the fact that it's um, distilled and, and produced 
on Isla is generally where a lot of that character comes from. But I, I've got a bottle uh, I was able to pick up here locally after being introduced to it in Scotland. Uh, Brooklotti has some releases, um, you know, they call it, you know, Island Barley. And it's almost like um, a vintage with a wine where they'll say, okay, this is a 2013 Isla Barley. Mm. So I think it was just barley grown that year. I, I wouldn't think there's that much variation year to year as you would have with grapes. No, there there shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's a neat it's a neat trick, and and I think I think as as a, uh, a region of 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 Scotch, I think they've kind of figured out, hey, we're our own brand, right? Like Scotch isn't Scotch. Right? <laughs> Um, and we're our own brand and it makes sense to invest in our own brand with tourism and, and of course, you know, putting your, you know, region on the front of the bottle and not just on the back of the bottle. And, uh, so yeah, makes, makes, makes a lot of sense what they're, what they're doing. So, yeah. So that's what I'm drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you drinking? So yeah, yeah. we, we had a great visit to Isla. We stayed three nights and, and we, we did Gemba visits and we'll come back and, 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 and talk about that again. But we also went, we took a side trip to a different island, uh, Jura. There's a distillery there mm-hmm. called Jura. And then we, we also went then for one other day uh, to Campbelltown, which is a region that's it's probably the most obscure of the regions, I would think, to most Scotch drinkers in the U.S. Lots of production, but not as well known. Yeah, I agree. So it used to be, so Campbelltown's a bigger town than any, it's, a, it's almost a small city compared to the, the small communities right. on, on Isla. But Campbelltown used to be the, the king of whiskey production, if you will. They used to have 30 distilleries, and now they're down to just three. Wow. And we visited um, two of them. Um, one that we really knew and had been a favorite of mine and my wife's uh, Springbank. Mm, but then yes. what I'm drinking tonight, to answer your question, is one of the other distilleries, Glen Scotia. And yeah, there, there's there's pride in region where it says classic Campbelltown malt. They're putting that right front and center on the label. Um, so I'm trying to. This is a Glen Scotia 18 that people might be able to find. Um, at a, a better whiskey shop, um, under hundred dollars. So for you know an eighteen year Scotch, that's you know there there are some that certainly cost more than that. Uh, finished in Oloroso sherry barrels. Part of the education we got with our guide in Scotland was a better appreciation. Quick detour that there are so many different types of sherry. Yes, different levels of sweetness and and from different regions of Spain. So to call out in particular an Oloroso sherry as opposed to a Pedro Jimenez sherry and 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 other types. But it's this one is at forty six percent ABV. You can see, you know, it doesn't have a ton of color. By looking at it, you wouldn't think it was sherry finished. And you know, you never know. Does that mean finished? two years or six months. Right. Or, I don't think that's always disclosed. Um, but you know, you, you get the taste of the sherry. But then what I'm having side by side is a, a distillery release we brought back. This is actually, it's 20 years finished in uh, first fill Ruby port. And you can see how much more red yeah. that one is. 
Um, so we're going from kind of like a straw. No, it's darker than straw, but then definitely to more of a very copper um, yep. color with um, with with the port finish. So yeah, really, I mean, I had a, a great visit to Glen Scotia, and um, you know, so again, Springbank, uh, and then Glen Guile is the third one, which I don't think I've ever tried. I I, I don't know that name. At all. That's even to me more obscure. But back to your your your, your categories of you know, this whiskey bar, basic tier, second tier, third tier, um, you start seeing Springbank. Yes. More and more. But then I think Springbank has become really trendy where it's getting really difficult to find because they're yeah, not I, the producer. Yeah. They're not that big and they put a bunch into marketing and, and it, and it had one of those, uh, sort of, well, you can't, you know, you can't, find this or afford that so spring bank is you know what what mm-hmm. you know that's a find and so now it's become yeah I, I do think it is a little a little hard i don't think scotch has been as 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 fallen its victim to what i call the instagram mm-hmm. uh uh plight of bourbon collecting where people are posting their pictures of you know eagle rare and even buffalo trace like a buffalo trace isn't nothing special yet you know, people will buy a bunch and post pictures because because they also make pappy and they think they're drinking pappy and yeah. and so I don't know what they're thinking. But and Buffalo Trace is perfectly fine. I enjoy Buffalo Trace, but I wouldn't stand in line for it. <laughs> but there, there's um, so there's just glut or not not glut. Sorry, a boom where yes. yeah uh, the prices have skyrocketed and Scotch almost becomes then a value play. I'm like, well, I agree a little bit. You know, uh, it's just, it's different, of course, but more uh, better value for money, you know, as they say in England, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it really is. So I, the word glut came to mind because I'm I'm looking forward to this. Isn't good for the producers, but at some point, the boom and bust cycle will end up in the other direction, and we might have a little bit more of a, a, a glut instead of not having enough. But looking at um, Glen Scotia. Compared to Glenlivet, Glenlivet produces about eight times as much each year right. as does uh, Glen Scotia, just from a quick Google search. But then the the great thing about visiting Glen Scotia, I mean, it's going you know, to transition into Gemba Talk. Like he, we, he didn't lead the tour, but we got to meet like the master distiller and mm-hmm. had you know a fairly long conversation with him in the shop. And you realize, okay, you guys are really interested in this. You're not a group that's just going around trying to get drunk. And then he starts bringing out, like, "Hey, I would, I'd love you, I'd love for you to try this." And like that, that's kind of a special opportunity to hear someone talk about their philosophy of how they do things and why they do things a certain way. Yeah. Well, let's let's uh, you know let's transition to in the gamba. So this is sort of you know we don't talk. Uh, we usually talk a little bit about whiskey and it's mostly just drinking whiskey while we're talking about lean. Um, this is probably closer to a blended topic of, you know, in the, in the Gamba. Um, and, and, you know, you, you went toward and got to see some of the, the deep stuff of what really happens, mm-hmm. but, you know, just to put it in context around it, not just being a, you know, just a, a an interesting talk topic about scotch. Is I you know I think anytime you go to the gambler, whether you need the knowledge or not, you gain insight, you gain wisdom, you gain appreciation. There's so many things in this world that 
you know, are seemingly simple. Yet when you get closer to the gamber, you see how hard some aspects of it are. I remember just uh, Land Lakes was an old client of mine, and and you know you go there and it's like you just take you just take cream, you pasteurize it, churn it, extrude it into butter. Like how hard is that? But then you realize how many different ways it gets complex and hard and and subtle and nuanced that it it it's but you can't appreciate that without mm-hmm. going to the gamba. So, you know, whether people need that knowledge around scotch or not, it's interesting, at least yeah. to us. But I think there's also just a broader lesson around there's things you can learn up close. You can't yeah. learn, yeah. you know, in a book. You, you can learn about the product and the, the people and the place for, you know, that, that that's informative, but it also forms a connection um, and this is why they allow tourists to come in to their gemba, right? I mean, you know, we, you, you remember that you've been to this place and it remains special to right. you. And, you know, people say, I think only half jokingly that, oh, it always tastes better. They could say this about wine. It always tastes better when you're there somehow it, because it's well, an experience. It, yeah. Because you have that connection. Uh, there's a podcast I occasionally listen to called blue collar bourbon and, mm-hmm. And, and, and they'll, they'll sometimes talk about, at least, you know, they, they try to decide whether they would, they do blind tastings of mostly bourbon, bourbon and rye, um, an occasional flyer on a, a scotch or something, but they'll, uh, you know, they'll sometimes talk about whether they would buy it, try it or trash it. That's mm-hmm. their sort of scale. Sure. But, but sometimes they would say, oh, well, if I was, yeah, I'd buy it if I was visiting the store, like yeah. they're very conscious that. You know, if you're visiting the distillery, it's a different, diff, you know, you wouldn't buy it off the shelf. You wouldn't mm-hmm. keep buying it. But if you're at the distillery, yeah, you have this little, little extra connection and part of the story. And, yeah. you know, you get, you get to, especially for things like distillery dishes that you can't, you can't get at a store. So, yeah. And that's, yeah, uh, for precious suitcase space. Yeah. To bring stuff yeah. that, that you're going to savor. Um, because you you carried it all the way home and it's it's special and it's very limited. But what you said a minute ago reminds me, Jamie, the old quote from President Eisenhower. I pulled it up here. He said, you know, farming looks mighty easy when your plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from the cornfield. I put that quote on so many slides. Uh, one of my favorites. Uh, and 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 he's he's got it dead right. So. But instead of corn, I mean, I was you know, the, there's barley fields. Now, I didn't see that. I was going to give a quick rundown um, of, of the value stream. Like I, I saw mm-hmm. the entire value stream, uh, not the farming, right? But the one, the one early stage of the value stream that then kind of um, you know flows in and branches into the barley uh, is peaked. And to have an appreciation, I, I know from a previous visit um, to Speyside, where they occasionally, like Balvany will occasionally produce a peated whiskey. Uh, ben Riek, which is a favorite of mine, they do more peated whiskey. But there is this association with Isla, especially yes. like the really heavily peated, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the Octomore whiskeys are the world's mm-hmm. most heavily peated bourbon you know and they measure this in like you know parts per million 
um, they're, they're, you know, and, and there's somewhere it's almost like a bragging rights thing, kind of like with hot stuff, right. like right, how right. could it possibly be? Um, and so whether you like that or not, is, of course, is a matter of preference and Pete in and of itself. Um, it's not the only variable that matters, but I had the sense that that peat is from the ground and it's like chunks of dried semi-decomposed soil. But when we were there in Isla, our guide took us out to these boggy, marshy, a bog and a marsh are probably two different things. We'll call it boggy. It's very damp. Yes. Um, fields where basically there's this, this vertical face that's been cut into the side of sort of a, a, a little bit of a hill. And then basically like, you know, the, people go out there and do this very manually, very physical work of, of cutting layers and, you know, fairly standard sized chunks. They're almost the size of one of these artificial fireplace Duraflame logs. Yeah. And that's the peak. And then you can see because the vegetation is different there in Isla than it would be if they're getting peat in Speyside, um, there's, there's, there's like the stringier organic material that is not, that, that provides a lot more smoke than the peat that they might be using in Speyside. So then you start getting this connection of like, well, not all peat is the same. And some of it isn't just providing heat with a little bit of smoke. Some of it's providing heat with a lot of smoke, and that's where generally you get the style in Isla, where not not all of them um, are, are heavily peated, but I, I think that's what people associate your Lafleur, yes. your Log of Ulin, your you know those are those are very peaty. I almost said Talisker, which is a very very peated Scotch, but not from Isla. So right, you can get I used I probably incorrectly at some point thought that was an Isla whiskey, and it's not. I probably Just, did too. It's easier I to definitely. Spend. Yeah, yeah. I kind of tr- looked at it as a, you know, a, a one degree off of Lafroig or something early on. But, but I, you know, I, I think also the, you know, I've, I've also heard or read about that, you know, the the constant barrage of the sea salt, uh, you know, mist coming over helps helps keep, of course, keep keep it boggy, right? That's kind of where some of the moisture comes in is is the winds whip up the seas and the comes in and so that that affects it and then you know even if you're not cutting it some of the water that they use will run through the bogs mm-hmm. and pick up levels of peat in the water itself mm-hmm. um and it's it's apparently unclear how much that affects well, the final product i mean if it's running i mean like out there it's basically dirt but then it's the burning of it that produces so I wonder what water running through there might have a little bit of uh, salinity to it if it's not perfectly fresh water. Yeah, it's a different it, it, and and it's not really the main effect. But the main effect is the, the burning of it, and you know it, and it really isn't. Uh, you know, it's not going in the whiskey, right? That's yeah. that's the important thing well, is it's not an ingredient. Yeah, it, it's, it's crazy when I part of the process that. Smoking, so we get back to the value stream around um, the barley where the peak comes up to it. And I'll run through the value stream quickly. So you obviously the 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 barley is grown and delivered, and then it is uh, quote unquote malted. Now you have a sourcing decision. 
Like, so there's a large industrial facility on the island of Isla that most everybody buys their malted barley from. There are some places like Springbank um, in, in Campbelltown. I'm trying to remember who on Isla has a malting floor, but some of them at least do some of their own malting. I think partly yes. to show tour visitors and partly just to say they're doing it and it's tradition. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the malting is that germination process of the barley. And then to stop that growth, that's where the, 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 the heat and the fire with or without smoke comes in um, to stop the, uh, the germination process. So then the, the barley moves along, you've got grinding mills. Now, a couple of these distilleries had these you know, hundred year old mills, really old timey looking equipment, not the least bit computer controlled. It's all manually adjusted, unlike the new equipment. In the two different places, one in Isla, one in Campbelltown, you almost think like, is this just a story you tell the, the tourists that supposedly there's only one guy still around who knows how to maintain these machines and his name is on like a steel plate. And he's on, 94. <laughs> I mean, it, it, like, it's, it could be, you know, it could be true. It makes for a great story, but, you know, they, they um, at some point might have to replace it with something more modern and, and less romantic. And then you go through, you know, when, with the, the, the grinding, you've got the, um, the, the, the mashing and the cooking and the, uh, the fermentation, the distiller's beer, then you've got the distillation and the barreling, but, you know, before coming to the end of the, the, the supply chain, there was one quick, uh, fun story at one of the distillery gembas, we got to talk to the guy who was running, um, the stills. And, um, my wife sets of like, you know, this, this seems like the, 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 you must, you must think you have the best job in the world. And he said, no, it can actually be quite boring. Yeah. <laughs> he had to make some adjustments. And then you go sit for a couple of hours. He, he, he does a lot of reading, apparently, while he's working there. So he seemed happy. But yeah. you know, I think he'd been doing it a long time. And it kind of gets to the point of, like, yeah, it's not as glamorous as you think it might be. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, managing, just because I can see one from my hotel room. Managing a drawbridge. Right? <laughs> it's 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 short moments of very important work where you have to pay attention sure. to what you're doing, followed by sitting down and waiting. Yeah. So we saw a lot of stills and a lot of distilling, and then the uh, the maturation, the aging, the warehouses. Uh, I would I would suggest don't confuse that with the waste of inventory, because that time in the barrel is absolutely a value added process. Yeah, and, and you can you, you can taste the difference, right? I mean, you take the same thing that's that's aged for two different, you know, since you were a Juraf, as an example. Yeah, I've had, I guess they have a 12-year and a 10-year, I think. Um, and older, yeah. And older, right? But I, I, I don't think I've had the older. I, I think I have the 10 on my shelf right now. And yeah, you put them side by side, you can taste the difference. Um, no, I mean... And and again, the duration of that aging, right? I mean, your your bottle there would be in college, <laughs> like right. My my my, you know, the, the two bottles are the ages of my you know two older kids, and yeah. and um, yeah, that's a long time to just you know sit on something and 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 watch it get better. Um, but and, and you're that's the important thing is you're not 
you're not just putting it away under lock and key and then hope it gets better. You monitor it, you manage it. You know, there, there's still, still activity. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the activity is just making sure the process is working. And, you know, a year is not a year where, well, and with Scotch, you never know because they are allowed to add caramel coloring. Yes. Um, straight bourbon whiskey, you are not allowed to add coloring. So the authenticity of the, the color might not be completely known. Um, but like yeah. a 19-year-old bourbon would generally be a lot darker in color than this yeah. year old um, scotch, even with the sherry finish, which does tend to impart a little more color than just using um, old bourbon barrels would. Yeah, and and bourbon, you know, bourbon is using you know virgin barrels, and and it's a much more uh, aggressive process of Im- impact, you know, barrel impact, where scotch is, you know, a much more subtle uh, yeah. interaction, and so it takes a little longer usually to have the impact you want. And it also, I think, ultimately, which is why I, on average, prefer scotch, adds to some of the depth and complexity and, and uh, uh, you know, dynamic nature of, of scotch. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to, I was putting a little water into my other one. This is my Springbank. Springbank. Water, uh, pitcher. There you go. Nice. A little glass dropper, which we managed to get home without any breakage. But um, <laughs> I was going to tell you know, another fun story. Now on the on the consumption part of the value stream and the value add to the customer trying it, um, Lagavulin was a trip I was really looking forward to. Did you ever watch uh, Parks and Recreation? And there's a character Ron. I, uh, yeah, I, I know the show. I don't want to say I sat down and watched it, but yeah. But you can go find me. I'll send you the clip, and we can link to it in the show notes. There was an episode. Ron Swanson, famously a Scotch drinker. Famously, a Lagavulin drinker, the actor Nick Offerman loves their whiskey. And there's an episode um, from the series where he actually goes to Scotland. He goes to Isla. He visits Lagavulin. And you can see, like, going back and watching that clip, he was in this tasting room, this part of the warehouse, really. And, like, that's exactly where I am or was. And there was, there's one guy who's worked there, um, Ian MacArthur. He's worked there for 50 plus years in different distilleries. Mm-hmm. Was in that episode. You see him just interacting with the Ron Swanson character. I don't think you hear him say anything. But I'm like, that guy, like that, that was not an actor. That's actually um, the guy. And um, they said that, that Nick Offerman had been there, I think, like just two weeks before us. Like that would have been mind-blowing to actually see the actor comedian Nick Offerman there. But they have a release of Lagavulin. and it's the uh, Nick Offerman edition. Okay. He's put his name to, and it's quite popular. And he's done promotional stuff with Yeah, Lager. he's done a lot of promotional stuff with them. Uh and he, he it does seem to it does seem to be one of those celebrity endorsements that is like, this is the product they like. Yeah, and there's an endorsement deal in there, and we'll we'll make that work, which is better than some of these celebrity uh, bourbons, mostly. But you know, these celebrity whiskeys that they just, you know, we'll find some barrels and put our name on it and call it something, yeah, yeah. something cool. But passion for him, not a, not just a, a cash, yeah, marketing, right? Yeah, and it, it's kind of thing. And I have to say, Lagavulin 16 is is pretty much always on my shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it, it I'm not going to say it's my favorite, but every time I finish a bottle, I find myself, yeah, I should, let me get another bottle, put it back on the shelf and yeah. always seem to want a bottle. Cause it is, it is distinct and I, and I, and I like it. It's yeah. good stuff. And I'll, I'll, I'll throw in the, uh, the show notes or the, the blog post on my blog, a photo of me and Ian and you know, like, he's this, I know, you know, say leprechaun is that's Irish. <laughs> and I mean, it as a compliment. Like he's this you know, kind of charming lepre- Scottish leprechaun of a man. Um, he's not real big and he's got kind of a squeaky voice. And so I asked him, Hey, can we take a picture? He was doing the tasting for everybody who was there. So I was the first one to ask, can we get a picture? And so we pose and uh, he was being cheeky. And as, as you get ready for that cheese moment, he, he turns, he says, say Lafroig. Just playing a prank <laughs> on me. And like a lemming, I say Lafroig. <laughs> we're at log of Woolen. i know this and so he got, <laughs> he got me but um fun funny funny guy but then realize then here's the thing uh i think of like covid times or getting past covid they actually allowed us to um basically siphon whiskey out of the barrel by mouth with the uh the whiskey thief and mm-hmm. um you know before I put my mouth on the guy. I had the opportunity to do that with one barrel to pull out the tasting samples. Before I had the opportunity, they took a rag with a little bit of whiskey and they wiped it off. Like, yeah, I mean, we had we had plenty of jokes early on in COVID that drinking whiskey will kill COVID. Would when we know the alcohol level isn't anywhere near enough to almost oh yeah, that. Not, not quite. The barrel strengths are in like the fifty-five percent range, so no, it's not. It's not hand sanitizer, but you know I'm vaccinated. I'm boosted. I survived it. It was a, it was a, a risk I chose, uh, right, <laughs> to take. Plenty of other exposures. So, but um, well, that's, so uh, that's that... a couple of the highlights anyway. But I saw most of the value stream. Um, I did not do a value stream map as uh, part of my homework, but you know, we could do that. Yeah. No, I think that's 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 neat though, because you do you get appreciation of some of those subtleties, right? Around, you know, even distilling, right? You kind of go, well, distilling isn't distilling's a step, but that's not where a lot of the art is, right? Mm-hmm. And so, it, it's it's in all it's in a lot of things, as as our our friend David Meyer will talk about. There's there's a lot of different things that you know. It's not just one thing. Like a lot of people think it's just the age in the barrels, like right? Oh. But no, there's there's so many different things that affect the taste that yeah. you, you really have to understand the whole process. I mean, this is one where you, you do have to understand the whole value stream if you're going to actually run it well. There's there's lots of variables. There's lots of uh, critical to quality dynamics and things that you would want to understand and control for. So, so that was my trip. But Jamie, you've you've had a chance in your travels here to visit a couple of yeah. So, so most people that know me know I'm trying to travel a lot less than I used to, you know, 40 weeks of the year. I'm in a, a Marriott. I'm still titanium for life. And, and, and I'm like, you know, I'm like, I don't, I don't feel like I need to be. And, um, but I did have a recent road trip and I, it, it involved a couple weekends where I just had to drive like from one location to another for six, seven hours. So I had some time to kill at a couple stops and, uh, did visit a couple of distilleries. Now I didn't do tours. Mm-hmm. Um, one is they, you know, you generally had to sign up and half time there was separate from the tasting room. I was, and I, and I didn't expect to find anything particularly, uh, particularly exciting there at, at those, but I, 
I, I visited two uh, distilleries in Michigan, um, one in Western Michigan mm-hmm. uh, called called Journeyman in Three Oaks, Michigan, uh, which is a tiny little tiny little town. Right? It has two stoplights, I think, maybe maybe a little more than that, but not not much. And uh, yeah, t- tasted that good good stuff. Um, I think they had a four grainer, um, a couple good ryes, but. You know, I, there's plenty of micro distilleries that like, yeah, we do a you know, a whiskey, a gin, a vodka, and they line them all up. And and almost all of the micro stills will have a, a vodka and a gin and uh, and a rum yeah, usually. Cash flow when they're getting started. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not going to blame them for that. But you can kind of tell when somebody's whiskey forward, mm-hmm. right? And right. so it's like, oh, well, we have like five different varieties of whiskey and a gin and a vodka and a rum. And so... You know these these guys fit, met that re- requirement, so I, I I visited them. It was pretty good. Picked up a couple bottles, as you tend to do, mm-hmm. always more than you would probably pay for that same bottle on a, on a store yeah. shelf. But I doubt I'm going back to Journeyman anytime soon. And then the other is uh, was Two James in Detroit, and this is in an old building, right in the shadows of the old Detroit train station which is a famous building the 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 pope years ago did a big event there it's been closed for decades um in corktown where the old tiger stadium was and um and it you know it's it's uh again a place where probably most of the people i saw coming in had a mixed cocktail right because they do their own specialized cocktails with their ingredients and so i just want a cocktail they're just treating it like a high-end bar i did a tasting Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, it was a whiskey forward distillery with, uh, in, including a, an unaged, uh, mm. uh, whiskey, uh, a white lightning, what you generally called or white dog, Moving um, spirit, they call it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 uh, goes on the bottle better, but, but they actually bring in some, some, some peated malt to, to blend with. A bourbon, which is an interesting, interesting combination. But I have to say they were quite good. I, I enjoyed two James in Detroit, uh, right on right on um Route 12 uh in Corktown. So so those were a couple of my my stops, right? And it's it's uh you know it's it's not bad. You can you, know, you go to a bar, you're gonna pay fifteen dollars for a cocktail, you pay twenty, you get a tasting, yeah, and taste a bunch of stuff, buy a couple bottles and I, I think it's a, it's a, I don't want to say it's a good way to kill time, but it's, it, I think it's, it's a m- much more interesting to me than just going to a bar and ordering a drink. Yeah. Well, I, I've had um, two James. I was in Detroit for work in about 2015. We'll call it. Um, had a chance to try it at a bar again, like trying to drink local. I grew up around Detroit, so it's cool to right. see um, what's going on. I did buy a couple bottles. Um, to come back and actually uh, the store here recently, I saw um, the two bottles that I had. One's called Johnny Smoking Gun, which is yep. a unique, almost meant to be kind of like a Japanese grain whiskey. And then the other yep. one, uh, gosh, where'd it go? Grass Widow. Okay. Yeah, that's their bourbon, I think, right? It's a high rye bourbon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so I like it when people are trying to do stuff that stands out stylistically they're not just trying to make a 
copy of somebody else's bourbon they're doing yeah and not gimmicky either right i mean you know infusions and stuff like that i mean the 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 smoking gun was very smoky (laughs) um but uh yeah i had i think some of my favorites weren't weren't those two they were some other ones but uh but yeah i think they i think they do a they do a good job and the bar right there in in detroit is 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 quite a nice little spot um i'll have to check that out next time i'm closer to detroit now um, so yeah, so I'll get up there. And then I, w- I was going to say that when you're talking about time to kill early August, after we did the last episode, I was in Michigan, Traverse city for the Michigan lean consortium. So I had a chance to visit, um, Traverse city whiskey company. I tell you, I tried some, at uh, evening event wasn't real impressed about that. Well, let's go and visit and let's see. Well, then they had some cask strength bottles. And I'm not saying higher proof is always better. No, but, but it helps. <laughs> it there, there's 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 a, a flavor component that sometimes gets lost if it's um, diluted down, proofed down um, too low. So I actually bought three sample bottles, and I tasted it, and I wanted to hate it. And I thought, okay, a cherry whiskey, like it's Michigan, so okay, you have to. I don't yeah. drink flavored whiskeys, but it was actually. It was really subtle. Um, it wasn't like it wasn't the type of thing where they've added um, sugar or sweetness. Like it, it's the type of thing that would actually play really well in classic cocktails, like a old fashioned or a, a Manhattan. So I will give a shout out to Traverse City Whiskey up in that part of Western Northwestern. Would you call it Northwestern Lower Peninsula? You would well for yeah for those that know enough Traverse, Northwestern yeah. Lower Peninsula. Uh, it's not Northwestern Michigan, just Northwestern lower peninsula. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think 80% of the tart cherries in the world come from mm-hmm. the Traverse city area. Um, that's that area of, of Michigan. So definitely, uh, makes uh, sense. Part of, yeah, part of, part of their, their heritage for sure. So, well, I'm glad you've um, gotten to visit and, and drink local and, See what's yeah. going on where where you've traveled. Yeah, I haven't I haven't done that in uh hmm. in, in DC, but uh where I am now. But it it is it is a nice opportunity. And these guys are all out there trying to trying to do a good job. So visit oh. your local distiller. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'll report back in the next episode. My my other week of travel, I'm gonna be in Portland, Oregon. And that is the home I've been before, but it's been probably eight or nine years one of the top five whiskey bars in the, in the United States. It's called the Multnomah Whiskey Library. Okay. They've got thousands of whiskeys. I think it's technically a private club. So I, I had to buy a one day membership in advance for me and a colleague to go, which sounds, I mean, you know, so what, you know, uh, jump through that hoop, but it'll be good to go back there. And I'll tell you what I find there. That's interesting. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, imagine a new opportunity for flights um, in, in that process. So, well, do we still have time for our, uh, our, our little sort of content topic? Cause we were focused on our value stream today. Uh, we did. Well, do you, do you want to touch on it briefly? Jamie, he, he wrote a post on LinkedIn and he's got you know some thoughts to share. This is I'm, I'm I, I don't have similar experience in this uh, 
process of uh, work retreat as he as he wrote about. But we'll link to it in the show notes. Do you want to kind of just? Yeah, well, well, I mean, you do right because because even the reason it came up was we were trying to schedule, and uh, you were you were taking a writing day, <laughs> and um, a short retreat, sure, short retreat, right? But I mean, it was a, it was it was deep work, right? It's it wasn't sitting around doing emails. It was deep work, work that requires some 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 focus and longevity and and things like that. And so I I think you know retreat might be a, a strong word because it implies location changes, which is nice when you can do that. But um, yeah, I, I wrote a post. I actually had a friend, uh, a professor uh, friend who was uh, uh, taking his own work retreat to do some planning and development and design and stuff like that. And asked for some advice. And and I, I gave him a bunch of advice on email, actually. And he's like, you should, you should write that up. So I, I, I did. Um, but you know the the main the main message is that you know whether you're writing a book, you're doing strategic planning, you're doing reflection, you're trying to uh, work to work on a deep design for something. Right, our, our brain and our body and our work has different cycles, and it's really hard to like. Oh, let me write, do emails for fifteen minutes. Write a book for fifteen minutes. It, do emails, then have a meeting for twenty minutes. Like book work can't be juggled the same as the other tasks you might try to switch between. I would agree. Right. And so there's certain types of work that for many people just get pushed by the wayside because they don't fit in that cycle. And so you have to design in some type of retreat. And so I'll call it a retreat from the normal chaos of work. Mm -hmm. Retreat, again, doesn't have to be a different location, but it requires changing your mental and physical rhythms so your brain can work differently. Um, again, whether you're writing a book, which, you, you know, you and I both can, can resonate for, and, and a lot of it comes from, you know, my book writing, I, I, I went away up to the mountains and I did a lot of things differently than I would on a normal work day when I was off, off, off writing. Um, and, and, and I, you know, some of it was just force yourself out of your routine, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, you know, certain parts of your brain are on edge. Right. Some of you is woken up out of your slumber, like you're, you know, you have no routine. So you have to be conscious of kind of everything. So, you know, if you exercise in the morning, exercise in the afternoon. If you drink coffee in the morning, you know, drink tea instead. If you, you know, uh, you know, just just change, change, uh, change your wake up time, uh, uh, change your eating schedule, change your physical environment. Whatever you have to do, but you put yourself on a very different plane physically so that your brain can also operate on a different plane at the same time. Um, you know, body and body and mind are connected. And and uh, so so that's a lot of what I was writing about in that post. And, you know, I, I think what's interesting is that, you know, we're coming we're in the fourth quarter. I also wrote a little, a very short, just a, that wasn't a, an article. It's just a post just around the fourth quarter. But a lot of people use the fourth quarter to sprint to the end. Then they might take the holidays to do some reflection and then, and then start, which I think is a mistake. Mm-hmm. I think you should use the fourth quarter to set up next year, mm-hmm. which means people should be doing strategic planning and setting goals now, not January 1st or December 20. 
seventh or something like that, which means you might need to do some retreats right now um, and not just sprint to the end of the year. One other one question I was going to ask you, Jamie, you know, as I get deeper into writing, you know, my book on learning from mistakes kind of based on my favorite mistake podcast, uh, gratuitous plug for that project. Again, um, we're all waiting. We're all waiting with anticipation for the book to come out. Um, is, is so I, the week of, uh, there's a week in November where I had very little scheduled and I said, okay, well, a couple things that I do have scheduled, I'm canceling those meetings. I'm not going to do any work. I'm going to treat it as, you know, uh, I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm full-time employed by myself, but I do contract work with others. Right. So I'm calling it quote unquote PTO. I guess it, it means personal time off, not paid time off. But I can do that, and um, my hypothesis is that you know I'll, I'll make so much more progress with that. I was going to ask to borrow your place, though, right? Because like if I'm home, do I have the distractions of of home, and like I should turn off the internet um, and and minimize some of the distraction? But should I like how much of the value comes from just focus versus go go someplace different? I think a lot of it is how much that location helps establish your routine. Mm. So like I wouldn't like I could probably do it from my home, but I I wouldn't do it at my desk. I'd yeah. work in a different place. I'd clear off a table, I'd clear off a dining room table, I'd I I'd, I'd work in a place where I'm not used to responding to emails, right? Because you sit down and you respond to emails. Mm-hmm. Now, when I wrote my first book, I I I did it at Starbucks. Because Starbucks didn't have internet, right? <laughs> which is kind of, kind of a weird concept now, right? Yeah. I went to Starbucks because it didn't have internet and I could just write. Now, I do a lot of writing now on Google Google Docs. And so then I still need internet, which... Oh, well, pro tip, there's there's an offline mode. There is. Yeah, there is an offline mode. And I, I just, I'm sloppy about getting <laughs> getting set up. So I, I, I'll, I'll start doing that next, next book, whatever you know, mm-hmm. that is. But but I think I, I think you can work from your home, but you still need to change your your physical setup. And so I mean that could be as simple as you know flip your desk around for for the week, you know stare at a different view, <laughs> uh, stare at a different wall, mm-hmm. uh, put up a big poster that changes you know what you're looking at each day. Just something that that does enough to sort of shake you out of oh this is my work spot. Yeah. Um, but I do think, you know, I do think the, the the retreat idea is, again, a retreat from your routines, a retreat from your cadence of boom, 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 email meeting, email meeting, and to, to spend enough time immersed in topics to let your intuition and your creativity, you know, really start to flow. Um, so, yeah, with a writing week, I would consider a different location. Uh, but I'd certainly consider, uh, you know, a, a different routine. Uh, you know, maybe you every day go out and, you know, have a big breakfast or, you know, I mean, you're already good at taking walks and things like that, but, you know, something different to start your day and then work in a different setup, uh, even if it is in the same location. I'll, I'll try that and I'll, I'll report back next episode. How's that? Sounds, sounds good. And I'll, I'll share my experiments because I've, I've, I've 
you know, I, I don't just write like as other work, I do client design and thinking and trying to think through their problems. Next, next year, I'm in the process of setting up one week a month that we'll be meeting free. Hmm. And, and, and I'm just going to condense my meeting schedule to other, other days. And I'll have one week a month that now, now two of those weeks, well, one week is a vacation week. Um, so I'm not taking two weeks that month. One week is Thanksgiving week. And one week is the week after Christmas, which I would have taken off anyway. Um, so, you know, it, it's not all for work retreats, but the idea is one week a month. And then I, I can use that time for, for writing, for reading, for research, for, 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 uh, for thinking, what, for design, whatever that might be, and not just try to squeeze it in with, with all the meetings. And again, you know, similar to you, I, 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 I don't have, I don't say anybody to report to. Um, but, but I would argue that if you're, you know, if you're a design engineer, if you're an executive, if you're, you're still paid for clarity of thinking, Mm-hmm. you're still you're not paid for go to meetings you're paid to make good decisions you're paid to design and execute good strategies and if the cadence of running from meeting to meeting doesn't allow for that to happen you're not doing the best version of you mm. i mean you're not going to probably take a week off a month if you work in a big corporation but if you don't even in those roles uh if you're not planning time to do that deep think work you're probably not doing the best job you can do. And I believe that very strongly. Yeah. Well, it sounds like good, good tips, good advice grounded in, in your experience there. So. Yeah. We'll link to the, the post in the, in the, in the show notes. So. Okay. All right. Well, episode 35 coming to a close. I let me find our closing fun question here. Um, probably short answers on, on these. Um, if you worked at a distillery, what job would you want to do, Jamie? Yeah, so so master distiller is the easy choice, but you know, there's a bunch of jobs there that are, you know, really attentive, and a bunch of jobs there that are physically demanding. But but I I think running the malting floor, you know, it feels like a nice, you know, it sounds hard, right? I mean, spreading out, spreading out the the barley and. Do you like you know, shoveling snow? It's kind of like shoveling snow. It's kind of like shoveling snow. And and as long as I didn't, you know, as long as I wasn't that cold and I didn't have wind and, and ice beating in my face, I, I think I, I wouldn't, my, my, my lower back might, and knees might disagree, but I, th- I think sort of the evenness almost feels like a, a Zen garden like, I'm sure the people that do that job would go, it's not a Zen garden, man, but uh, <laughs> you're romanticizing but, but I, it, but yeah. Yeah, but I think I'd have fun, like, you know, how how do I optimize this and what are the little nuances of doing it well and, you know, get the right thickness layer laid down and a lot of those little, take, an, take a straightforward task and really study it and get the nuance. That that might be, you know, I didn't want to pick an obvious answer, so that's my yeah. my non-obvious answer. Well, the moth, I mean, how about yeah. you? Any of those are jobs where through repetition and study and diligence and, yeah, you could get really good at it my um i, I want to do quality control <laughs> i'll taste the output of your hard work and tell you if it's on track or not but i mean i say that half jokingly but there are jobs where i don't pretend to have the uh, the finely tuned nose or palate 
Yeah, I would struggle there. Of tasters who are the keepers of the quality. And I'm pretty certain this was at Jim Beam. They have a dark sound, perfectly dark sound isolated room. It's like a sensory deprivation room other than the tasting. That's where the people who are their keepers, and it's not just one person. They're keepers of the flavor, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's their story. Neat. Yeah. Well, I've, I've had many food clients over the years, and and uh, it's nothing like, uh, uh, you know, tasting M&Ms in the morning and things like that. But, uh, yeah, whiskey would be would be next level. But I, I also do not have the, the palate uh, sensory uh, accuracy to, to do that job well, so. But uh, before we wrap up, we often talk about glasses. I forgot to mention these little glasses I've been using. I know the people are just listening, um, can't see it, but they're from Boone Haben. A lot of the distilleries there were using, they call them a, a tulip glass, or it's basically like a little mini wine glass. Right. So it's a similar shape, not exactly the same as the Glen, Glen Cairn glass that's usually my standard, but you know it's got a stem so you're not holding it and warming it unless you want to. Um, some of those warehouse tastings, it was pretty cool. And they were almost saying, here, hold the glass in your hands and warm it up a little bit. Um, yeah. but, but that's what I've been using for my samples. And they're a small glass, so it makes a, a small tasting pour not seem so small. Nice. And I'm since I'm traveling, I'm using a cheap wine glass that <laughs> I have available. So better than a plastic cup. Thank goodness for the gay lord. That, that was um, that was yeah. That's yeah. what I usually have to suffer through if I'm not thinking thinking about it. So yeah. Well, I want to thank everybody uh, for listening. And you know, if you want to find other episodes and learn how you can subscribe. You can go to leanwhiskey.com. You can spell that K-E-Y, or especially as we were on the Scotch theme today, spell it whiskey with a K-Y at the end. Um, those forward to leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey. Or if you want to stay the hell away from my, away from my website, you can go to jail. Yeah, because once you, once you get there, who knows what's going to happen? You might find a lot of other things to do. You can also go to jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey. You can find other fun things to read and you, you can get sucked into James's website just as well. You can <laughs> um, you know, look for us on uh, Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google podcasts, and pretty much anywhere you might want to listen to a podcast. Absolutely. And then do, you know, follow us, uh, rate us, review us. Uh, you know, it, it helps us. It helps others. So really appreciate you know, any of that. Uh, we really appreciate, appreciate everyone just tuning in to listen. So. So we're watching, those, those who are watching, see, sorry to interrupt. We have our uh, kind of, we both have orange shirts and, you know, because it's October, you know, my, my wife put out some Halloween decorations so you can see. Yeah. That. And I, I apparently planned uh, the art room in my hotel room. That's also orange. Uh, <laughs> we, we did not do any of this on purpose, but it, it did work out. The, the little funny uh, tombstone there. I don't think there's a lean connection. It says the name is clairvoyance she should have seen it coming (laughs) there you go so until next time cheers cheers